Welcome to The Recovery Show. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. During this show, we will share our experiences as they relate to the topic of denial. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'll be your host today. Joining me is Kelly. How are you today, Kelly? Excellent, Spencer. How are you? And also joining us is Erica. How are you doing, Erica? I'm good. I'm a little nervous, but otherwise, fantastic. All right. Uh, we found a reading, and uh, we're going to read part of it now and part of it later, and we'll talk about it. Life is a package deal. It is not enough to look only at the parts we like. It is necessary to face the whole picture so that we can make realistic choices for ourselves and stop setting ourselves up for disappointment. Living with alcoholics, many of us coped with an ever-shifting situation in which our sense of reality changed from one minute to the next. We adapted by taking whatever part of reality suited us and ignoring the rest. Again and again, we were devastated because reality didn't go away just because it was ignored. So, Kelly, what's your understanding of denial, and what was your early experience of it? Well, before the program, I don't know that I really understood the idea of denial as it applied to me personally. I, it was one of those things that was really easy for me to identify in other people, and I could see when they weren't realistically looking at their life or, or a situation they were going through, but I never really thought about myself as being in denial. I really thought that I was very uh, pragmatic and very um, thoughtful and that I just really thought I had a good grip on everything. <laughs> um, I was kind of awakened from that after coming to the program, for sure. And how did that awakening happen? Wow. Well, it was definitely a slow process, I think. Um, I mean, I think uh, kind of how we discuss the idea that when it gets painful enough, where we become willing to take action or, or look at the things that are contributing to or causing the pain and I don't know. I think that was just how my denial worked, that it was just that piece that you spoke of in the reading of really only picking and choosing the parts that I like or the parts that worked for me. And after I started coming to meetings and hearing people share their stories in a way where they didn't filter them, where they were able to talk about the good parts and the bad parts, the parts they liked, the parts they didn't, their pain, their frustration, things that I had really been ignoring and not facing kind of brought it to light that, you know, I had kind of been choosing the cafeteria plan of life, <laughs> kind of <laughs> picking the parts that I wanted and, and ignoring the rest. Okay. I want to come back to something you said about um, feelings, uh, but Erica, what was, what was your early understanding of denial? What is, what is your understanding now? Um, I feel at first it was a lot like what Kelly said, where I didn't really recognize denial in myself at all, but I definitely looking back now through my recovery glasses, if you will, 
um, I was denying a lot of my fears. I was denying a lot of my feelings and my um, insecurities and covering them up with this these grand ideas and dreams about what I had for myself and all of the people that were close to me. I had, um, I was in a relationship and I truly felt that if I could do well in this relationship, then I would be happy that my whole life would be good. If I could just do the right things in this relationship and be the perfect person and, um, not being aware of how I was really feeling underneath all that, I think was part of my denial I have a hard time deciphering between denial and ignorance for me. Some of, I think some of the things that I had in the beginning were just lack of knowledge. And, um, you know, my higher power brought me to this program and allowed me to see some things that I had never seen or heard before. Um, but there was definitely a piece of me that was not being honest um, because I didn't really know how to go about being honest without it hurting really bad. So that was kind of how I, my denial worked in the beginning of the program when I was early in recovery. Thanks. You know, I guess I came into the program living with active alcoholism and uh, my, dis- my denial of, of that alcoholism was one of the things that, that kept me from coming into recovery uh, sooner in my life, that I was not willing to admit that my loved one was an alcoholic because I think partly because I had a certain picture of what an alcoholic was and it did not fit her. Uh, she had said a number of times over several years that, that she thought she was alcoholic and she had gone into uh, treatment programs and I was denying that. I just couldn't accept that, uh, that applying, I don't know what I thought applying that label would do to me, but it wasn't something that, that I was willing to do in my life. And it was when it became really clear to me that a, she was an alcoholic and B that I was not able to do anything about that. Um, that I then found Al-Anon and started to find recovery I had known about the program for a while. I didn't really know what it was about. I knew that people at, at treatment centers had, had told us, family members, that we could benefit from going to Al-Anon, and I, was, I was just didn't understand how those 12 steps had anything to do with the problems in my life. And, and I knew that the problems in my life had to do with their drinking. That, that, um, you know, that was obvious. Um, I didn't understand what my contribution was, and so I guess I was also in denial about uh, the un- not the unmanageability of my life, but the ways in which I was contributing to the chaos that was our lives at, at that point. That my feelings, my reactions, uh, the feelings that I was denying, the anger that I was stuffing down, those things were also contributing and that somehow I didn't really understand that if, if I came to find recovery myself, that that in and of itself would improve our situation, even if her alcoholism 
continue to be active. And and Kelly, you started to talk about denying your feelings, and and I thought that seems like something that's that's important to, to understand the effect of that and and how that happens. And I wonder if you could say a little more about that. Well, I, as you both were talking, I think it's interesting that Erica brought up the idea of ignorance. And Spencer, when you were talking about be- the beginning of the relationship, I started thinking about what brought me here. And when I first met my qualifier, he was five years sober. And he told me that maybe, you know, like two weeks into the relationship, like he, his sponsor had encouraged him to be upfront about his situation. And so he, he told me that he was sober and that meant that he, he was never going to drink again and, you know, kind of explained it to me. And my reaction was very blase. Like I just, I was just like, okay, you know, like it just didn't register. And so I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this idea of ignorance. Was it really a reaction where I just didn't understand the idea of alcoholism and what that meant? Or was I just kind of in denial about the situation and the potential impact it was going to have on me? But, you know, the feelings question is really, really tricky. I had a really interesting conversation with a friend last night about that. And part of it, I think, is just an ingrained process for me. I mean, really what I learned in my family of origin was that you didn't address feelings. They weren't discussed. They weren't, um, they weren't approached. They weren't acknowledged. And so I, you know, I feel like it was easy for me to put a name on them. When I hear people speak in meetings that they, they didn't understand what different feelings were or how, you know, how different feelings felt. I knew what they were. It was just that there wasn't any sort of forum or process for working through them. So the, the, my, the, my MO was just to ignore it no matter what it was and sort of bring myself back to this flatline state of emotional being, you know, and just not really address any of it. Um, so I, I think that also kind of makes it hard to recognize denial, you know, if, if I, if I don't know, right. if I don't know any feelings. You know. So I'm looking at the reading that we started with and, and I'm looking at the sentences we adapted by taking whatever part of reality suited us and ignoring the rest. And, and that's what I'm hearing from you right here, that, that you were ignoring the things that didn't fit with your image of who you were or how you were supposed to live. Does that? That's correct. Yes. And uh, so recognizing, how, how do you recognize, how, or how did you recognize um, when you're in denial or when you were in denial? Did that, can, can either of you speak to some experience uh, of that? Well, I can. Um, I know that one of the, looking back now and thinking about denial, um, I came to Al-Anon at a point when uh, the relationship with the alcoholic that I was with had come to a point where it wasn't, it didn't feel good anymore for some reason. And I think that um, I couldn't tolerate the idea 
or the reality or truth that this relationship might not last. It was so, I was so desperately searching for something to give me self-esteem or purpose or importance that this relationship was it. And when it started going downhill, I couldn't tolerate the idea of it being anything but what it was in my mind. And that was this relationship that's going to lead to marriage and children and all these dreams I had of like what a perfect life for myself should be and should include. And I recognized that there was something wrong because my life felt very unmanageable. And I was emoting a lot. I was crying all the time. I was trying to get answers out of my significant other. I was just generally, I had this unhappy feeling, and I couldn't really explain what it was. And um, and luckily, my alcoholic that I was living with kind of knew what it was, and he gave me, you know, how Al-Anon works, and I was able to get to a meeting and learn more about it. But now, now when I feel that feeling where I'm, like, not being honest with myself, I'm justifying behaviors that I know I don't like that I'm doing, you know, that I've seen in myself as not positive behaviors, but I'm justifying them. I'm sort of lying to myself. And that's that justification and unmanageability that those two are like the big signs for me of when I might not be, be looking at the reality of a situation. I think for me, the times, the, the incidents that I can think of where I was sort of jolted out of denial, and maybe that's the key there, uh, had to do with when reality just became too obvious for me to ignore it anymore. And I'm thinking about uh, my loved one had been in some in sobriety for a number of months. And I had not even a year in the program at that point, and un, unknown to me or ignored by me or denied by me, she had relapsed. And I saw all the signs, the fact that she would come home early from work and then be really sleepy in the evening, um, a little bit of sort of disconnectedness in, in converse and so on. But I just told myself, well, you know, work's really hard for her right now and, and she needs her rest and that's why she comes home and takes a nap. and. And I totally just ignored what was actually happening. Uh, even when I was given very direct cues, we were at a therapist once, and the therapist asked me, well, how are things going? I said, oh, they're going great. I'm not worried at all. And she turned to me, my loved one turned to me and said, well, maybe you should be worried. And I totally did not understand what she meant by that. And I think I'm pretty sure that at that point she had already relapsed or she was into uh, relapse behavior, even if she hadn't picked up again. And what finally did it for me was one evening at dinner when she was obviously slurring, and I went upstairs to the bedroom and looked in the closet, and here were all these empty bottles. And it just slapped me in the face. I could not deny the reality of those empty bottles. And... Uh, that led to my own sort of Al-Anon relapse where I went back to some very controlling behavior. Um, and, uh, but I had the program to help me 
pick back up and and get back to where I needed to be. But it was it was a really rough few days when reality crashed in on me and I could not deny what was really happening anymore. And uh, there's another incident that I'll, I think I'll talk about a little later uh, because it, it illuminates a, another part of the reading that, that we're going to do. Um, Kelly? Yeah, I think recognizing when I'm in denial is something that I can pick up on when it's when, when there's a situation or an outcome that I'm really trying to control or that I really want to happen, mm. that if I want something to happen so badly, I'm probably in denial about what's really happening or what the realistic situation is. And I've also noticed that I'm probably in denial when I start to get really logical about something, when I start to get really thoughtful about organizing the process and the thoughts about how I'm going to get to something or, or, you know, kind of, kind of, again, sort of controlling the outcome. And I think it's in general, just a lack of acceptance. You know, when I'm, when I'm unable to accept reality and the situation for what it is, I'm, I'm generally in denial. And that those types of situations are just really detrimental to the continuance of my recovery. You know, when I am not in reality, I can't be present. I can't be in the present moment. I can't have acceptance. I'm not utilizing my higher power. Um, and usually, you know, when I get back on track is when I use the phone list or call my sponsor or get together with someone and I start talking about whatever the situation is in this very roundabout logical way and how I feel like it's all going to work out. And they sort of give me this look like (laughs) something's wrong here, (laughs) you know, like you are way off track with this. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm grateful for other people in the program who can help me get back on track when when I'm not in a good space. Any thoughts, Erica? Yeah, I I like that you brought a, brought up acceptance because it was when I was thinking about this topic before we talked about it. That's the first word that came to mind is that acceptance is kind of like the opposite of denial for me, and when I'm willing to accept the be whatever reality is in front of me when I'm willing to accept how I feel too, like we were talking about feelings, that's when I can um, move forward and decide whether or not it's something I can control or something I can't control. Or if I don't know, I can decide to wait or to seek my higher power, the wisdom of my higher power. And um, I really like, I, I really like how, we've already sort of talk, begun talking about some of like the solutions to it too. So I heard, I heard some things that, that struck a good chord with me here. One, uh, to put a word on it is expectations mm-hmm. that when I have expectations about the way somebody is going to act about the way a situation is going to play out. And if my expectations don't, 
meet the reality of that person or of that situation, then I'm likely to experience some denial of reality because my picture in my head of the way things should be and the way things really are, are not meeting up. And then uh, something you said, Kelly, reminded me of, of a way in which I can detect uh, to recognize denial uh, or other uh, negative issues is when I'm reluctant to reach out, when I'm finding it very difficult to make contact with my higher power, when I'm finding it difficult to use the tools of the program that I know work for me, then, then I'm probably in some denial of reality. And I don't want to use the tools because that will force me to face reality. That will force me <laughs> to accept reality. And, and I don't want that to be true. And, and I was thinking... Recently, I've been uh, con concerned, anxious. Uh, anxious is a good word. I've been anxious a lot about uh, our financial situation. Uh, we've taken on a significant amount of debt, putting kids through college on top of debt that we amassed during the years of chaos and unmanageability. And that's been weighing on me. And we are making steps towards resolving that. But I find myself being very anxious about it and I find myself awake in the middle of the night and I have tools that I've used in the past to help me get through those uh, prayer gratitude lists and so on and there have been times recently when I would wake up I woke up at four in the morning the other day and I started trying to just do a gratitude list and I couldn't get myself past the second item on the list I just kept coming back to my anxieties, my fears, and essentially was not willing to use my tools. And, and I think, and I'm, I'm working really hard on, on trying to be realistic about where we are and be realistic about where we're going. Because that's another thing for me is I think I'm, I deny that there is a solution. I mean, that's stating it strongly. I think it's it's that I'm maybe based on past experience, uh, but I'm not willing to believe that we actually can and we actually are on progress to dig ourselves out of this hole. And, and so by trying to uh, use the tools that would bring me into direct conflict with this, this belief, this expectation, which is not one that I want to have. And that's what's really sort of ironic and, and um, frustrating about it is, is I would much rather be in a place where I have confidence that we're on track, that we're, we're really making progress, that we're going to resolve this, not this year, not next year, but before I retire. <laughs> um, and... At the same time, I find myself not willing to push into it. And, and there's, there's something going on there. There's some fear and denial going on there that, that I haven't understood yet, I think. And, but I know that just by recognizing it, just by talking about it, just by sharing my difficulties with 
people in the program that I am making progress. And, and, you know, we say in the program, we say this is progress, not perfection. And I want perfection now. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of this slow progress. (laughs) Okay. I just want it to be over and it's not over and it's not going to be over for a while. And I don't like that. And, and so the denial kicks in again. And I think I want to go on and read the next part of this, this reading that we started the show with, because I think it speaks to what I was just saying. It says, our lives will remain unmanageable as long as we pretend that only half of the truth is real. That's why sharing is such an important Al-Anon tool. When we share with other members about what is really going on, we cut through our denial and anchor ourselves in reality. While it may be difficult to face certain facts, when we allow ourselves to confront them, we cease to give our own denial the power to devastate us at every turn. And that's, that's where I am. I really think that's where I am on this. And, and very definitely sharing with other members has, has been a really important tool for me. I mean, six months ago, I was not willing or able to talk about my fears of our, about our finances. Uh, it, my throat would close up and I just couldn't, I couldn't say the words. I could just say, I'm facing a fear that paralyzes me. And that was all I could say about it. And, and I first shared with a, a small group that I'd been working with. Uh, we'd been working the steps for about a year and a half, I think at that point. And I was able to share it with that group where we had built up a real, um, intimacy and trust that I knew that I could talk about this and it would be accepted that I wouldn't be judged by it. Uh, But at the same time, when I shared it there, I I prefaced it by saying, I'm going to say something and I do not want anybody to respond to what I have to say because it's hard enough for me to say it. Mm. Uh, And I did that, and then I was able to share it with my sponsor, and then I was able to share it in a meeting. And every time I shared it, the burden got less, and my possibility of dealing with it, of of facing reality, and thus being able to move forward to a solution increased. And the fear that I felt diminished every time, and I found myself being able to, to do things that the fear had just prevented me from from doing at all, and that was really that was really powerful. And, and at the time, I w- we were working on steps six and seven, which are humbly uh, became entirely ready to have God remove our shortcomings, and humbly asked Him. And I saw in this process of admitting it, which is a fifth step activity, admitting it to other people, to myself, and to my higher power accepting that this was a problem, being able to admit it to myself and accept it instead of denying that it was, I mean, I knew it was a problem, but I was also denying that it was a problem that I could deal with. Made me entirely ready. And as soon as I was entirely ready, I was able to ask my higher power for help and I got immediate relief. And it's still there. It's not gone, but it's, so much better than it was. And so by facing the facts, by getting back to reality, um, 
I, as it says here, I cease to give my own denial the power to devastate me at every turn, which is, is what was happening. So maybe one of you has, has, has something to say about this too. Well, I agree that sometimes just saying something out loud, even if I'm saying it out loud in my brain, you know, in the car, but like saying it in a sentence to where I'm recognizing something or when I start saying it, when I say it out loud to someone else, that relief that, that I feel, I definitely can relate to that. And I really like how this, the steps work in a way to where we have a process of becoming self-aware and it teaches us by doing an inventory and then by admitting, um, admitting all of the things we find to another person and then accepting them and asking for them to be taken away by our higher power. It's, it's, it's almost like this first round and first big practice in self-acceptance. And then for me, I feel like I I can go from there and I can face um, new realities in a way now where I have this whole toolbox of I can take an inventory of a situation. I can see what's mine and what's not mine in a situation. And the it's a great process that I can use every time something comes up where I don't feel 100% about it. But I really, I just to digress back, I really agree that just saying something out loud, if, if it's a truth, it feels really good. And if it's ridiculous, I usually hear it. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, but saying it out loud helps me to get to a better place of understanding what the situation really is and understanding that's, I think that's the wisdom, eventually getting to the wisdom to... Um, know what I can change and what I can't in a situation. And it's nice. What I keep hearing through you guys and, and partially through the reading is kind of the idea too of trusting the process, you know, trusting that our higher powers put us in these financial difficulties or crazy relationships or whatever situations we're in because we're supposed to be there. You know, we're supposed to gain and learn something from it. And if our eyes are open to that process, then like you said, Spencer, it's so much easier to just work through it and come to a solution than if we're in this state of denial about, no, this, even though something goes wrong at every turn, I'm insistent that this relationship is perfect or, (laughs) you know, that this situation is just going to magically go away or, um, or whatever. But I, um, I kind of hate this part of the reading, Spencer, (laughs) simply because it talks about the idea of sharing, which is like the bane of my existence. I hate sharing at meetings. I hate it. Um, I have lots of reasons why I hate it. Um, And most of them are kind of what Erica touched on earlier about just the idea of of self-acceptance and feeling like what I have to say is valid or worth hearing for other people or that it's even going to make sense. Um, and so I'm sure that there's some sort of like personal denial involved in that. And it's, it's definitely something that I'm working on, but, um, 
but I hate seeing that sentence that says that's why sharing is such an important Al-Anon tool because I like to think I, I, I have this have always had this personal philosophy that uh, I will only participate in things that I know that I'm good at. And then I just ignore the other stuff. So as far as my personal program goes, I'm kind of in denial about this whole sharing process. And in exchange, I overcompensate by sponsoring a bunch of people and doing a podcast and (laughs) doing all this other stuff so that I can tell myself, well, you're busy doing all these other things. You don't have to share, you know. So, so it's, it's interesting to be, to be brought to back to reality about that. So thanks a lot, Spencer. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome, Kelly. Um, yeah, I had another situation just in the last week, really, where my denial was, was forced into my consciousness. And it has to do with my mother, who, whose health has been failing for really for several years and she's 81 this year, soon to be 82. And really, I think when, when she hit her mid-70s, she started looking old. <laughs> Up to that point, I could really deny that, that my parents were getting older. They were still very energetic, very active people. And yeah, they were wrinkled. Yeah, their hair was gray. But they, they were still very much the people they had been for most of my life, just a little grayer and a little wrinklier. And her, her health has really been going downhill physically and to some extent mentally. And I saw her just this summer, just not even six months ago. And yeah, you know, she wasn't looking so good. She's a lot more frail. She moves slower. Um, she's having some kind of back thing where she's kind of bent over and she got a walker and she has to use a cane to get around. And But I could say, oh, but this is, the doctors say it's some muscle thing and she just needs to do some exercises and she'll get better. And and I was really able to minimize it and to, to deny what I think was is really happening, uh, which is she's getting old and she's, you know, she's on the path towards the end of her life, and I don't know when that's going to be. And of course, my fear says it's going to be right away. Um, I'm going to I'm going to lose her. And they came out for a visit uh, for the holidays, and when I saw her in my house, when I saw her at with about the height of a hobbit. As, as she was really bent over, um, when I saw her moving really, really slowly, uh, having difficulty getting around our house because we have carpet and the friction between her shoes and her carpet made it difficult for her to walk. Um, and when I saw her falling asleep during the time we were opening Christmas presents, I really was, as I say, slapped in the face with the reality of, of where she is, where her health is right now. And, and I was seeing behavior that, at least in my mind, seemed similar to that of um, my father-in-law who died several years ago, the way he was acting in the year before uh, he died. And so that just brought up a whole lot of fear, a whole lot of anxiety, And 
what I did, what I did with it was I came to a meeting and I shared about it in the meeting and I managed to keep myself from sobbing, but I tell you the tears were running down my face as, as I was really saying these things out loud for the first time. And it helped. It helped. Um, and some other people, one of the other people in the meeting talked about uh, the work she'd been doing as a volunteer in hospice. And just the f when I shared, and I don't know whether what other people said had anything to do with what I said or not, but it, it really spoke back to me and, and helped me with acceptance of what's, what's happening. I still... I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how much time she has left with us, but I'm working towards accepting whatever may come. And, and I have to pray about that. I have to pray for acceptance. I have to pray for um, the ability to be as present as I can. They live 500 miles away, so I, I don't see them very often. But it's, I feel like I've started the process of healing from that abrupt shattering of my denial. Mm -hmm. Erica, you mentioned that, that you might have faced something similar. Is that something I, you want to talk about? Um, I can glaze over a little, but um, my one of my grandparents has recently been diagnosed with dementia and... Um, we kind of came, uh, my mom and my aunt, who is my grandfather's daughter, um, and I were talking, and, and it was just sharing some things about um, some recent characteristics and symptoms he's been showing that have really um, are, are dementia symptoms, and it's something that I think um, his adult children have been not um, I mean, maybe they're not ready to face it. Maybe they're not aware of what's really happening. Um, I don't know. They don't communicate a lot. So it's interesting to watch my family members who I love dearly, who don't have recovery, deal with a, a big change. And, and dementia and potential Alzheimer's is a huge change for any family. And um, these are things that, like, I recognize as completely beyond my control. And that's something that's a gift from the program. I, I know that there's literally nothing that I can do about it. And um, sometimes I don't see that same concept in my family members. I, I see a lot of um, avoidance and denial that there's a problem. And I see... Um, maybe just confusion and, and fear a little bit. Um, and I know that with my father, he's so paralyzed sometimes by his anxiety and fear that it's something that he doesn't, hasn't been willing to talk about with me at all, which is, you know, for him, he's usually very willing to talk about anything for very long spans of time. So it's, it's interesting. And it's also, I try to look at it, positively and, and recognize that this is an opportunity for me to be grateful for my program and to be grateful that I, you know, in my twenties was able to find a set of, um, coping mechanisms that can help me get through something that's very difficult to understand and very difficult to 
experience and letting myself be sad about the fact that my grandfather is developing dementia. I can be sad about it and I can recognize it and I can appreciate three hours with him, you know, instead of being worried or looking for him to look, watching out for symptoms or anything like that. I can just sit and enjoy his presence, which I'm not perfect at. I still found myself watching him to try to find little um, symptoms here and there. And I think that's part of my control, my tendency to want to control the situation. If I can spot something and make scientific sense out of it, I can have a little bit of control. But then I can remind myself when I find myself doing that, you know, this is okay. It's okay right now. Um, I can enjoy his company and I can have a conversation with him. He knows who I am. He knows what's going on at this point, and and I'm going to appreciate it. So and not worry about what the future will bring right now. So. Thanks, Erica. You know, you 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 just made me realize a couple of things. One of which is that obviously I still have some fear and some denial going on here because I was not willing to talk to my father about what he sees going on, how he feels about it. And I mean, this is a pattern in my family. We don't talk a lot about feelings in my family. Um, but I think there's also some fear that if I ask him, he's going to tell me things I don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's still some denial there. Mm -hmm. um, but what you said about spending time. So, one afternoon, and I think my son initiated this, for which I, I am grateful to him, we played a game of Scrabble, which is a game that my mother has always enjoyed. And, you know, her, her mind is going. She's showing signs that might be dementia. The diagnosis is not clear. Her short-term memory is very clearly going. Mm -hmm. um, and... So I think I had some concerns about how I figured, well, you know, she's still got her vocabulary and, and stuff. And, and there were a couple times when it was her turn and she was having some difficulty sort of finding a play. Uh, and I was able to just relax and let it happen and not get anxious about how long it was taking her and her uncertainty in what she was doing. And that, I'm, I know that is a gift of the tools that I've learned in this program. And so I thank you for reminding me of that, that, that there, the, the time that they were here was not all negative. You know, it was not all my fear acting up that, that in fact I was able to enjoy her presence and to be not anxious and not concerned for a few moments at least. And it also tells me that this is something that I should continue to cultivate in, in future visits that, that I should be looking for what we're, what we're doing together, the ways in which we can, I can enjoy her company rather than sitting there agonizing about how 
she's not the person she was, but to be with the person she is. So thanks. I thought it was really interesting that you both kind of touched on the idea of control also, because I <laughs> feel that, you know, with codependency, obviously we know that there's a, there's a big need to control situations and also to fix them, to, to know the answer, to know what to do. And when we're presented with situations like ill relatives and we don't know what the answer is or we don't know how to solve it or fix it, denial becomes a really easy place to go. Um, my grandma is also sick. She's in her mid-90s. She's been in and out of the hospital. She keeps falling, and she's having some um, some disorientation issues. And it's really been interesting to watch the reaction of different family members and how they treat it, especially when they when they don't have the answer of how to fix it. You know mm-hmm. that they sort of go to this place of denial of oh, it's really not that bad or oh, it's just the doctor's fault, they don't know what they're doing, or, you know, it's just, it's so much easier to just blame everybody than, like what you said, Spencer, of just coming to a place of acceptance and doing what you, what is in your hula hoop and what you can do in the situation and accepting it for what it is and taking advantage of what you can, of what you have left instead of panicking or ignoring uh, because I, I do feel much like we talked about earlier that that just starts the snowball effect and, and really makes the problem worse and, and harder to deal with. So, so I think I want to uh, close with the reminder from the reading, which by the way was from uh, the courage to change daily reader. And it says, I can't cope with something unless I acknowledge its reality. When I am re- willing to look at the whole picture I take the first step toward a more manageable life. After a short break, we'll be back with our lives in recovery where we talk about the meetings we attend and what's happening in our lives. So next, James Taylor sings his song, Fire and Rain, where he's having trouble accepting the death of a friend. And the lyric that particularly speaks to me of denial in this song is, I always thought that I'd see you again. Yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you. I walked out this morning and I wrote down this song. I just can't remember who to send it to. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. Seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. But I always thought that I'd see you again. Won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You gotta help me make a stand. Just got to see me through another day 
My body's aching and my time is at hand I won't make it any other way Whoa, I've seen fire and I've seen rain Seen sunny days that I thought would never end times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery and what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. So I will start things off. Um, there is a meeting that I go to Wednesday nights, and it's traditionally a very large meeting. There's usually about 100 or so people there. And this week we had a fairly large snowstorm, and there were only about maybe 20 people that showed up, I think. And it was really one of the best meetings I've been to in a long time. And the funniest part about it is that for there only being 20 people there, there were four newcomers who had never been to a meeting before. And some of them came from 15 or so miles away, which was a long way to drive in that kind of weather. So I was really impressed by their willingness to get to a meeting that they, that they obviously really, really wanted to get to. But um, yeah, the, the part of the reading was actually taken from the big book and was on the third step prayer, right? Third step prayer, yeah. Which is kind of uh, just about asking God for the help to get out of my own way and, and do God's will for the day. And so it, it was a really great meeting. It was really, um, was really just emotional and intimate and... And it, it was really great. So, so yeah, what's what's happening with meetings for you guys this week? Uh, well, my my normal recovery schedule was somewhat interrupted by the holiday and by family visiting, mm-hmm. um, and and also by the fact that the small group that I've been meeting with for two and a half years, as we worked the steps, finished with our step twelve, and and I've decided not to continue with the group because I had given up some things in my life in order to do that, and I felt it was time to, to shift again. But I will miss that group, and I will miss that concentrated hour or so of, of recovery that, that I normally had. Also, that was on Tuesdays, and that was Christmas, so it wouldn't have happened anyway this week. But I really needed that Wednesday night meeting. I really I made sure to get myself there, and it was the first time that I was able to express my anxiety, my fears about what's going on with my mother. And that was, it was really very helpful to be able to do that. And I also um, attend a Friday night meeting. Oh, the Wednesday night meeting um, is called uh, just for today. It meets at Zion Lutheran church in Ann Arbor at seven thirty on Wednesdays. Uh, it's a really, it's a great meeting with a lot of recovery. And then the Friday meeting, the young at heart meeting, I also made it to, I had gone to see The Hobbit that afternoon with with my daughter and my wife, my daughter's second time seeing it, but we saw it in 3D this time, 
So she got a new experience, uh, uh, and she'll want to see it like four or five more times, I'm sure. She's a real fangirl. Uh, and that, by the time we got home, it was after 7 o'clock. I grabbed some leftover turkey and stuffing, ate it in the car on the way over to the meeting so that I could be sure to, to be there on time because <laughs> I, I needed to something to help me unpack everything that had happened during the week. My, my parents left yesterday morning, and so uh, you know, I was still really, really dealing with that. And um, the reading for the, for the meeting last night, Friday, was about intimacy and about how sponsorship can serve as a model of intimacy of the non-physical variety for those of us who maybe have trust issues or don't really know how to be intimate with others. And, and that also was very a very good reading for me. How are you, Erica? Um, well, I also got lost in the holiday um, goings-on. And I last night was the first meeting I've been to since Wednesday the week before. It was a much needed meeting, and um, I guess something that I that has been really important recently for me in recovery is that I've had a lot of opportunities for service lately. Um, I picked up a new service commitment at Friday night, and it's a long term commitment. So I'm really it's a commitment that needed filled, and I knew that. Um, I wanted and was interested to do it, and I it kind of had I'd been thinking about it for probably a year. I would say I'd been thinking about committing to this position, and I finally did. And so I think it was a good choice for me. Um, I also have had this opportunity to come here and talk, which is a great opportunity for me. It's good for my program to try something new and get out of my comfort zone. <laughs> and um, I also have had. Um, just opportunities here and there to do one-time service things. And I think that um, it's been a big theme for me lately. And I have a service opportunity this coming week at the Wednesday meeting um, as well. And it's, it's important for me to say yes when someone asks if I can. And um, even if I have to rearrange some other things, um, because I know that the outcome is going to be good when I say yes. And I know that every step that I take sort of action wise, um, that works towards my recovery is it's a step in the right direction for me. So I'm really glad for all the opportunities that lately that have sort of just handed themselves to me. Um, and I know that's my higher power working in my life and work and it doesn't happen if I don't go to meetings. So, um, that's why I go and that's why I, um, go to meetings. I take phone calls. I take sponsees. Um, I work with a sponsor I have friends in the program that I spend time with outside of meetings, and it's really important to me to maintain those relationships. Okay, any, any last words? So our topic for next week will be choices. We welcome your thoughts. Please leave a voicemail or send us an email sharing your experience, strength, and hope on this topic or your questions. And Erica, how can people send us feedback? Well, Spencer, they can send us feedback by calling um, our voicemail. The number is 734-707-8795. That's 
707-807-8795. Or they can email us at feedback at therecoveryshow.com. And just as a reminder, both of those are also on the website. Uh, So if you didn't get it when we said it, just go look at the website, which is therecoveryshow.com. Our closing song is called Cleopatra, Queen of Denial. It's by Pam Tillis. And I hadn't actually heard this song. I found it on Spotify by doing a search for denial. There's a whole bunch of songs about denial of various (laughs) sorts. It's amazing to me how many of them there are. Um, I feel like this particular song is a great example of the kind of denial that we've been talking about today. So give it a listen. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.